Um, and I, this, this sermon, I, I've been waiting to preach a sermon for so long, you have no idea. Um, and I saw this as a great transition into next week. But this, I couldn't, this is probably a three-part sermon that I had to get down into one sermon. So you're going to have to listen. I'm going to speak with my New York kind of <laughs> fastness, and you're going to have to listen with New York ears, okay? Um, I will try to, uh, you know, enunciate all my words correctly, but there's so much we have to get through, and at certain times, I'm going to say, hey, make sure you study this further. So write that down, okay? Because there's so much in this text that we're going to talk about, and I want so much to elaborate on everything, but I can't, all right? So make sure you write down what I tell you to write down so you can go back and study it. So, yeah, next week, we're in a new series called Stand, does it really matter what we believe? And today, as a lead into this, into that series, as a lead into that, I want to rescue truth from familiarity, okay? We become very familiar with stories and very familiar with different things in the Bible. And sometimes we miss the nuances. We miss what that, what that, what that verse is really teaching us. And this morning, I think, is one of those times. And I, I want to use Jesus' parable in Luke chapter 15, the parable starts with the, with the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, complaining. They're complaining about Jesus because Jesus is spending time and welcoming tax collectors and sinners, and he's eating with them. He's eating with these people, and they don't, they don't like this. They didn't like the way he was kind of welcoming them into his presence. They were concerned because of the way that they defined holiness and they defined righteousness. They had their own definition of what it was. Obviously, we know they're wrong because Jesus is God and Jesus defined it a different way. But that's why they were upset. And so they were really concerned about this. It was a big deal to them who you hung around with, if you will. And they're thinking, if Jesus is this rabbi, if he is, you know, according to them, if he's this godly man, why would he be spending time with these sinners? Why would he be eating with them? Because eating was significant. Eating was a sign of acceptance. When I, when I had a meal with you in that culture, it was a sign of acceptance. And beyond that, this guy, Jesus, seems to be seeking these people out. See, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they would separate themselves from anyone they thought lesser than them. They were, of course, holy, and they were, of course, righteous. And anyone who was a sinner in their eyes, they wanted nothing to do with those people. And then Jesus is seeking these people out, and he's engaging them before they repent, before there's this brokenness and repentance that you had to go through before you would be in the sight of a Pharisee or a Sadducee. So in response, Jesus tells them this parable. He tells the parable in three parts. It's not three parables. It's one parable in three parts. And, and in each part, something is lost, and then that which is lost is found. Okay? So something is lost, and then that which is lost is found. And in each time, in each of these stories, when they find the thing that was lost, there's celebration, and there's feasting, so there's eating there. And Jesus is making a point. He is making, oh, this story is, is so filled with imagery and so filled with symbolism. That's why I want you to go back and study it even further. So, so there's celebrating. First, you have the, the uh, in Luke 15, you have the, the story of the lost sheep. Okay, the sheep is lost. There's, he's got a whole flock. One of them's lost. He goes and leaves the whole flock and he goes to find that one sheep. He finds the sheep. He throws it on his back. Study that part. Study even that. There's so much, there's so much richness there. And he carries, why would, why would he carry the sheep back? He carries the sheep back and brings it back to the flock and they're celebrating 
eating and there's feasting and all good things are happening. Then a woman's in the house. She loses one of her coins. She searches the whole house, tears the entire house apart. I know some of you have experienced that when you've lost your wedding ring or something. Where did it go? Especially if you have little kids, you put your ring down and it could be anywhere. So you tear your whole house apart, you know, to try to find the lost coin. She finds the lost coin. She invites all her friends over and they have a big celebration. Of course, there's also feasting going on there. So this morning, I want to focus our attention on the story that we call the, the prodigal son, if you will, the lost son. You have the lost sheep, you have the lost coin, and what we call the the lost son. Starting in verse 11. Okay, let's read verse 11. Jesus continued, there was a man with two sons. Okay, two sons. Jesus said the man had two sons. Write that down. Write that down. Two sons. All right? That's important. He had two sons. If you listen to most people, they'll tell you the story is basically about one son. Okay? This one son, he goes off. He's the black sheep of the family, whatever you want to call him. And that's where our minds get stuck. This one guy, he's the black sheep. He, he's taking drugs. He's doing whatever. He goes off and, oh, we we'll pray for the prodigal son to come home. And that's basically the end of the story. That's what all it means to most people. But I dug way deeper than that. Okay? And came up with the, th- I came to the theological conclusion that this story is about Two sons, okay, is about two sons. And now you're sitting here going, how did you, with the intellect, it must be incredible, had that kind of intellect. How did you come up with a theological understanding that there were two sons? Because I opened my Bible and I read, and there were two sons. Hey, you know, you didn't have, you guys don't have years to pass for nothing, okay? Uh, you know, two sons, okay? So, so the story is about how many sons? Two sons, get it? Good. That's important. That's important. That's very important, this whole story, because he had two sons. Okay. so the younger son speaks first in verse 12. This is what he says. The guy's really bright. He says the younger son says to his father, father, give me my share of the estate. Now, I'm going to hit history here and cultural history because you have to understand this. This was this was incredibly um, uh, culturally offensive. What the younger son said to his father, this was extremely important. Um, respect for adults in our culture now may not be anything. Like, you know, in the South, at least, they say, yes, ma'am, yes, sir, kind of thing still. Um, But culturally, young children, young men and women don't respect their elders in our culture. But in Middle Eastern cultures, that's not the case. It is still, it is still foundational to their culture. In, in, In Asian culture, same thing. You respect your elders. You respect people. In this culture, I watch people who come from other cultures in this culture, and it's very difficult for them. The disrespect that younger people have, and I mean younger, like if I'm 50 and someone's 70, I respect that person because of their age. That maybe not the case in our culture. That was the case. It is now, and it was big time back then. That was extremely important. So the younger son asked his, what he asked his father would certainly bring disgrace and dishonor to himself and to his whole family, okay? He didn't say, hey, Father, give me my stuff. It's a big deal, what he says. It brings disgrace and dishonor. Basically, he's saying, hey, Dad, I want my stuff, okay? You've, you've outlived your time. I can't believe you're, you geezer, you're still alive, you know? I've been waiting and waiting, waiting for you to die. You out, you, <laughs> so just give me my stuff. I want to be out of here. I want to be gone. I no longer want to be a part of the family. It is disrespectful in any culture what he said and what he did. And if you understand, again, the culture, then what you would expect to read next in the Bible is that the father pulled out a big old stick and beat his son. Yeah, yeah now, yeah, I get an amen from that one. <laughs> 
<laughs> exactly. If father pulls out a stick and he beats his son, because that's what you would expect. That's what that's normal. That would what would be expected. Jesus is telling these stories, okay, to the people sitting around, including the Pharisees and everything. He's telling these stories. They're confronting him. He's responding with this story. Now, also in the culture, what you would expect is the older son, okay, to intervene. The older son would intervene. He would step in because that was his role. His role was to be a mediator. So what the older son would have done in this situation, should have done, the older son would have stepped in and mediated so he could bring peace between the father and the son and really to protect his brother from the beating that was certainly coming because of his attitude and the way he presented this. It was coming. But the older son, there's, see, there's how many sons? Two, the older son does nothing and says nothing. Very, very strange. But it's what the father does next that's most interesting. Okay, now listen to what it says in the text. It says, so he divided his property between them. See, we missed that. When this story is so familiar to us and people tell it and it's all about, well, the black sheep of the family running off and, oh, I hope he comes home. Let's pray that he comes home. We missed this part. He divided his property between them, between them, because there's two of them, and he gives it to both of them. And the older son in this situation doesn't rebuke the younger son and say, what are you doing here? What is going on? He doesn't say to the father, father, I I want nothing to do with this. I mean, I, I do not want to bring disrespect and dishonor and disgrace to our, myself personally and to our family. I, I don't, I, you know, that's his thing. That's, that's his deal, not mine. He doesn't do that. He takes it. He takes it. So he splits it between the two of them. The father divides it between the two sons. Now, the younger son, we know the story. The younger son takes his stuff, he put, you know, and he, off he goes. And it says that he spent it all in wild and extravagant living. It doesn't say all of it was immoral. Okay, because usually it's like, you know, the whole thing is about how he spent money on prostitutes. It doesn't say that. It says wild and extravagant living. And what, what it means in the Greek specifically is unrestrained by convention or morality. So you have this guy, and he's probably spending it on everything. What, it, what it's saying is that he, he, he got the best of everything. You know, if he was going on a horse, he would get the best horse. And if he had, he'd get the best of everything. He had no restraint. He's the guy who walks into the bar and goes, drinks are on me. You know what I'm saying? And everybody's like, yeah. Hey, this guy is great because he has money. We could care less. What's your name again? But he, so he's using his money to buy friends and relationships. He's spending all this money. He goes through all this money and then something happens. Guess what happens? He runs out of money. Shocking, right? He runs out of money. And so, and then he runs out of money. And not only that, but then there's a famine in the land. So now Jesus is telling this story and everybody's listening. There's a famine in the land. And, and don't miss, Jesus pulls out all the cultural, trend, all the cultural nuances here. And, he's, and the young man has to go to a, a person who is born in that country, okay, a citizen of that country, tries to find a job, can't find a job. It's like 1929, right? Market crash, 1930s, really tough and everything. Can't find a job. So he ends up, Feeding the pigs, okay? Again, Jewish boys, Jewish people in general, they don't feed pigs. 
They don't like pigs. They don't eat pigs. They don't talk to pigs. They don't around pigs. They don't want anything to do with pigs. Okay? So what he's saying is this guy ends up the lowest man on the totem pole because he's saying, I would just like to eat what the pigs are. I don't have anything. I'd, I'd eat what the pigs are eating. So this, is, this guy is like flat on his back. He's like the gum on the bottom of your shoe. And at this point, now getting to this, the t- teachers of the law, the Pharisees are like, yes, it's a good story. This is a really good, this, this, is, a, this is a great story. I love the story. Remember their complaint that Jesus was spending all his time with these sinners, you know what I mean? These, these unrepentant people and everything. So they thought this so far, the story is great. But Jesus is telling them, you guys don't know what holiness is. And you don't know what sin is. And let me enlighten you. Let me enlighten you to what sin and holiness truly is. He says, sin is like this boy who comes to the father and literally, and this is what it means. Father, I wish you just dropped dead. Okay. Since you haven't dropped dead yet. Thanks a lot. Okay, I want to take my share and I want to be out of here. And he goes to a foreign country where he spends all of his money. He wastes it all and he ends up feeding the pigs, okay? The worst thing that a person in that culture could do. He blows it all and he, and he feeds the pigs. And again, at this point, the Pharisees and teachers of the law, they're like, bam! I mean, this is good. This Jesus guy is telling better stories all the time. You know? I'm beginning, I'm beginning to like him. I think he tells some good stories. They're thinking, this is really good. This is really good because the, the son is, is being, uh, he's, he's suffering. The son is suffering, he deserves to suffer, and the son is suffering. The boy is suffering. See, here's the thing. All of a sudden, you step back and start to think to yourself, you know, isn't it amazing when people sin against us, when they sin against us, when they sin in general, but when they sin against us, um, it's, it's totally amazing how we want them. We don't say this because we're Christians, but we want them to suffer at least a little. Someone comes and they do something to you. They wrong you in some way. At work, the guy at work wrongs you. The person in your neighborhood wrongs you. The person at school wrongs you. And then someone comes to you and says, you hear about the Smith family? And you're like, oh, no, what? I'll pray about it. Tell me. Right? Right? And they say, oh, he, he lost his job or their marriage is this or their children or whatever or um, whatever it is. And you're like, oh, 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 that just... I, good for them they wronged me they suffered that's the way it should be that's what the pharisees are thinking this guy is a sinner he's getting whacked this is perfect i love this story verse 17 when he comes to his senses but before we in order to understand 17 you have to understand verse 16 so let's go back to 16 for just a minute okay it says he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating so he's in a foreign country and he's starving Okay, what is his problem? What is his concern? His concern? Starvation. See, verse 16, verse 16, in verse 16, the subject is his stomach. You look at, you go back and read verse 16 and 17. The subject is his stomach. Look at what he says. Okay, he says, it goes on. No one gave me anything. Still, he's focused on his stomach. He goes on, how many of my, my father's hired men have food to spare? Still, thinking about his stomach. He basically says, I'm going to starve to death, thinking about his stomach. So he says, I'll go to my father, okay, because I'm starving. I'm thinking about my stomach. I'm starving. Come, it says it comes to his senses. It means literally he came to himself. And in that moment, thinking, man, I'm starving 
I need to change my circumstances. I need to change my situation. What do I need to do? I need to go back and I need to say to my father, Father, I've sinned against you in heaven. I've sinned, just, I've sinned against you. And he's, you know, I'm sure he's practicing. I've sinned against you. I've sinned against heaven. Make me like one of your hired men. You're like, man, that's good. That's good. You know, that's a, that's a, good, that's a good thing to say if you go back and you want to repent kind of thing to your father. But if you read the Greek translation of the Old Testament written for Jewish converts, that's the exact same repentance, if you will. That's the exact same phrase. That's the exact same um, form of repentance that Pharaoh uses when he's standing before a man named Moses. Go back to Exodus. Pharaoh is, you know, let my people go. No, I'm not letting them go. So all of a sudden the plagues start coming. Pharaoh's pretty arrogant. He's like a god in himself. All of a sudden he can't get rid of all these frogs. His people can't do anything. And so what does he do? He says, Hey, let's make, I will make sacrifices unto the Lord. Read it. I'll make sacrifices unto the Lord. He says to Moses, pray for me. Pray for me, brother. I'll make sacrifices unto the Lord. But, um, but you know what we want to do? We want to get rid of these frogs. The frogs have to go. My circumstances need to change. Right? So the frogs need to be elsewhere. So the sun sets off. Now, let me give you a little more um, background here from a cultural standpoint, a larger cultural context. Uh, I'm not saying this happened in the story. I'm just giving you a cultural context because Jesus is telling the story to a bunch of people in that culture who would understand all of these things. When a boy left home, when a person left home the way the boy did, he would take a path, he would leave on a path, right? And he would leave the home. And what would happen is the people in the village would take a clay pot and they would fill that clay pot fill with bitter herbs and spices. And they would take the clay pot and they would break it on the path in which the man left. They would break it on that path. And it basically was putting a line in the sand, if you will. You left that way, you're gone, bam, line in the sand, done. If that person came back, the men of that village would seize that person Okay, they would they would seize them. They would line up on both sides of the path that the person left on. They would get rocks and that person would have to run the gauntlet of the community throwing rocks at them. Okay, now picture this. He's telling this story. In all the records we have of this ceremony being performed, it always led to death. You didn't make it through that gauntlet. You came back, they seized you, lined the path, threw rocks at you, boom, you're dead. Now, go to Pharisees are thinking, again, I like this story. I, I like this story. This is, this is a really, really good story because they're now, Jesus is telling a story, they're now expecting the son... He's coming back. He says, oh, Father, forgive me, blah, blah. And he's, they, in their cultural mindset, they're expecting come, him to come back to his death. And darn it, he deserves it. Little punk leaves his father. He's disgraceful. He disgraces himself and his family. He ends up squandering all the money. He ends up feeding the pigs lowest on the totem pole. He deserves to die, that sinner, period. He deserves death. Then something happens. Jesus continues in verse 20. But while he was still a long way off, can you imagine them sitting there like, this is while he was a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. Kissing is a sign of peace. 
Okay, it's a gesture of, of peace. So the father runs to him when he's still far off. He sees him, he runs to him, and he, and he kisses him. Now, again, this is one of those things where you have to study even more because the father runs to him. You think, oh, the father runs to him, big deal. I'd run to my son. No, 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 culturally, that didn't, work. That didn't happen. The father, it was, it, was, it was like, it would be like really undignified for the father to do this. See, he would have to grab his outer robe and pull it up and his legs would be exposed. And now he's running like an old man down there. It just totally un- didn't happen. This didn't happen. So they'd be scratching their heads right now, even on that part. So the father runs to the son. I love this. And before the son can speak, the father kisses him. Before he gives this lame, prepared speech to his father, okay, the father kisses him. And his heart is truly turned. His heart, he's, he has, he, his, his heart is truly changed. In verse 21, the son says to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. You're thinking, so what? That's what he prepared to say. Ah, 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 we're missing something here. It's what he didn't say. What he didn't say was, make me like one of your hired men. That part is left out. He didn't say that. Real repentance. That is so significant that he leaves that part out of the story. That, that part, that he leaves that part out of his speech. Father, I've sinned against heaven and I've sinned against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Period. Not like, make me one of your hired men. See, what happens is the son realizes that it's not about the feeding of the It's not about spending all the money. It's not about all the stupid stuff he's done. The issue is the broken relationship between the father and the son. And he finally realizes that. The son finally comes to the understanding that the real issue here is not his stomach. The real issue here is that there's a broken relationship between the father and the son. The words are similar, but his heart is completely changed. The words, you know, we can say words, but where is the heart? His heart is, is, is changed. As, as he encounters his father's love, he repents. Remember a couple months ago I said that one of the greatest gifts that God can give us is like self-reflection, the ability to reflect on yourself and say, man, not, not I'm holier than thou or those people over there, I can't believe that guy, the black sheep of the family, whatever else, but able, the ability to look back on yourself and say, wait, I am the man, I am the woman. And that's what happened to him. He was thinking, my stomach, and all of a sudden something changed when the father ran to him and he responded to the mercy and the love of his father. See, in almost every culture and religion in the world, you have to earn forgiveness. Hear me out here. In almost every culture and religion in the entire world, you have to earn forgiveness because, because we as people have such a hard time. We have such a hard time forgiving until we think that person has paid the price. When they've paid the price, when they, when, especially when it happens to us, someone does something to you or to me, until that person understands the weight and the sorrow, until they feel the weight and the sorrow of what they have done, what they have inflicted, we don't forgive them. We want to make sure they, we want to make sure they suffer, if you will. They understand the depth of what they've done to me. And instead we get this story about the father. See, the idea that you have, to, you have to feel the weight, you have to feel and you have to suffer, that is not the gospel. That, Jesus is telling them, that is not, that is not the gospel. But the gospel says, even, even while I was still far off, okay, even while I was yet still a sinner, Jesus Christ died on the cross for me. 
Before I even understood I needed it, Jesus Christ died on the cross for me. He paid the price for our forgiveness. He paid the price. He comes. He seeks us out. He offers forgiveness as a gift, not by works that no one can boast. Are you, have you had a church background where it was guilt, 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 condemnation, making you feel guilty and all, just constantly feeling guilty about everything? You don't come to church enough. You don't do this enough. You have to do that. You have to go through the, all these rituals. You have to do this kind of stuff. You have to earn your way to God's forgiveness. You have to earn your way. That's not the gospel. That is not the gospel. Jesus paid the price. He forgave us. It is a gift from God. Before we even knew we needed it, why we were yet still sinners, Jesus Christ died on the cross. That's what Jesus is saying here. Christians aren't asked to come begging and pleading before God will offer forgiveness. That's so different than, than so many, even in Christianity, in some parts of Christianity. That's so different. We don't have to come begging and pleading before forgiveness is offered. Our repentance, our repentance is in response to his offer of forgiveness. You cannot earn God's forgiveness. You cannot earn it. You can't work for it. He's running to you. it's just incredible. See, when the son returns to the father, when the son returns to the father, he realizes that he cannot be, he he cannot be a worker because he can't pay his father back. He thought he was going to earn it. He's going to get some, what does he need? I'm not, I don't want to starve. But he realizes, wait, I can't pay him back. I can't work for it. I can't, I can't work for it because the issue is a broken relationship and only God can restore that. Only God can restore that broken relationship. You have a pen. I want you to write this down. I'll try to say it slowly. Repentance is the mean by which you receive the forgiveness that God has already determined to give you. Repentance is the means by which you receive the forgiveness that God has already determined to give you. Let that roll around in your mind. Let that roll around in your heart. That is the gospel. The father brings him back into, into community. The father brings him back into relationship. The father pays the price for his son. It is the father who does all of these things. And so they go and he comes and he puts the, all this stuff and he brings them in and they start to celebrate. They, 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 they kill the fatted calf, okay? Here's the thing. Another one of those little nuances. Jesus knew all of these things. Nothing is a mistake. They didn't just eat meat all the time. Okay, fatten them up. Dinner's in a couple hours, you know what I'm saying? Or a couple days, fatten them up. No, they, they fattened a calf in anticipation of something happening. The father saw the son. The father was waiting with anticipation for the return of his son and he anticipated it. And so he had fattened the calf and it, it, it's, it's incredible. It's, it, you think about this, God, for some of you, God is anticipating your return. God is anticipating being reunited with you. There's an anticipation. You're far off. You're doing your thing, whatever the case may be, and God's anticipating your return. Regardless of where you are in your spiritual journey, God's arms are wide open to you. Wide open. 
He is running toward you. Which way are you running? Which way are you running? God, his arms is open. He's running. He's running toward you to be reunited with you. The question we have to ask ourselves is which way are we running? And so really, who's the story all about? In the Greek, the focus, the emphasis is on the father. The emphasis is on the father. This is about, this is about the father. The father doesn't punish the son for his disrespect. The father forgives the son. The father kisses the son. The father puts his arms around the son. The father says, get the best coat and, you know, get the best robe and put it on my son. Again, study the robe, study the sandals, study the ring. He says, put this robe on my son. He says, uh, bring, you know, bring sandals for his feet. Put a ring on his finger. He does all of these things. He gives his son all of these things. The center of the story is about the father. True repentance is coming into and encountering the living God and responding to his love and mercy. True repentance is when we encounter a loving, merciful, living God and we respond to his love and to his mercy. The older brother, okay, he's ticked. He he, he doesn't like this at all. He's angry. And the father says, the brother is out in the field. He comes in. He asks the servant, hey, what's going on? I hear all this music. Who are all these people? What's going on? Your, your brother has returned. Your father is celebrating. The, the brother, the older brother is ticked off. Okay? And he does something really, really disrespectful. He begins to have a confrontation with his father during the celebration. He won't come in. He's standing outside like a pouty little baby, and he won't come in. The father's saying, come in and celebrate. And the son decides, this is a perfect time in front of all of my father's guests to confront him. Disrespect. In Luke chapter 15, 29 and 30, it says this. But he answered his father, look. Disrespectful. All these years, I listen to this, listen to these words. All these years, I have been slaving for you. That sound like a, a, a relationship with someone? I have been slaving for you. What? And <laughs> it's hard to laugh now. And never disobeyed your orders. Never did I disobey because I am basically the second coming. And orders. That's nice. Yet you never gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. What? But when this son of yours disowns his brother, who has squandered your property with prostitutes. How did you, do you have a crystal ball? Do you see what he was doing? Comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. See, the way the story is usually told, I'm, I'm sorry, the first time I heard this, the first ten times I heard the story, I felt bad for the older brother. This prodigal son runs off, spends all the money, blah, blah, blah. The poor other son stays there. He's working his rear end off and he never does anything wrong. And his brother's a prostitute. And it's like, you know, blah, blah, blah. And all of a sudden you start reading it a little more and go, wait a second. Let's go back to verses 11 and 12. Ready? 11 and 12. There was a man who had how many sons? Two sons. The younger said to his father, father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. He divided his property between them. Get it? Get it? Good. He divided. Now, you're going to love this, okay, culturally. If there are two sons in the family, like there was here, okay, the property is divided. Two-thirds goes to the older brother. One-third goes to the younger brother. 
I, I read that and I was studying. I was like, wow, wait a second. The older, brother, the older brother says, you never gave me a goat. You never even gave me a little goat. That's not true. That's not true. He gave him everything in the very beginning of the story. He gave him everything. Now, the brother, from a cultural standpoint, he owned it all. He had it, but the father was allowed to continue to use his estate until the day he died. Okay? But the brother is in control. He, he, he owns it. He has it all. You never gave me a goat. He's angry, and he's using generalities. I don't, I don't know. I've never done that. Maybe you guys have. I never. You always. How many, kids, how many people have kids in the house? Right? I never, she always, he always, I never, you always, right? Generalities. He's like, I never, and you always, and all these kind of stuff, and blah, 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 blah. And you killed the fatted calf for him? Verses 31 and 32, my son, the father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. Verse 32, but we had to celebrate and be glad because, don't miss this, this brother of yours... Little baby, don't just own your brother. Was I shouldn't pick on the older brother. Um, Was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. I have. We have to celebrate your brother's return because he was dead and now he's alive. He's lost and now he's found. He was. Yes, he was sinning. Yes, he did all these things. But look, look at him now. Look, let's celebrate his return. See, here's the thing. The reality is, both of the sons were lost to the father from the beginning of the story. Both the sons were lost to the father from the beginning of the story. The the older son shows this truth by how he treats his father in the beginning of the story and at the end of the story. The way he treats his father. But the father, the father who the story is about, the father shows grace to both of his sons. The father pays the price for both of his sons. The father offers forgiveness and reconciliation to both of his sons. You see, in the first two stories, there's a real clean, clear-cut ending, right? This coin is found, celebration, yahoo. The sheep is found, bring it back to the flock, big celebration, yahoo. And this, it's, it's not so clear-cut any, in this one. Uh, you know, you have to ask the question, does a brother ever come in? I would, uh, I'm more of an optimist, or, you know, I, I would like to think the brother went and sat on a rock and realized, you know, gee, I have a real bad attitude, I don't really see it the way I should, and has self-reflection, but we're never told that. You don't know if the father, you don't know if the older son comes in from the outside. See, he thinks of himself, here's the thing, this is what Jesus is trying to get across to these people. He thinks of himself as righteous, he thinks of himself as holy, and he's really ticked off at his father for showing grace to his brother. He doesn't like this idea of grace at all. See, both the older brother and the Pharisees don't like this story because they don't, they don't like this whole idea that Jesus would show grace to sinners. They don't like these sinners. You know why? Because they don't see themselves as sinners. They don't see themselves as sinners. So they don't particularly like this story. And they're angry that, show, that, that Jesus Christ is showing grace to sinners. There's no self-reflection here. And it's like, I'll be honest with you, it's like, it's like many of us we sometimes, we read the story or we hear the story and we say, yeah, it's about this kid who is a, a big pain and so he's disrespectful and he leaves home, he's a, prod, he's a black sheep, he's a wayward child and so that wayward child, let's all pray the wayward child comes back. Well, okay, that's part of it, that's, that's true. We want the wayward child to come back but if that's all you see, you're missing the point. These guys, the older brother and the Pharisees were like, yeah, see, there's a problem. 
It's that boy. He's the one. And not, not being able to go, wait a second, what does this story say about me? Jesus didn't tell the story so that one person would get the hint. I want you to bow your heads with me. I want you to bow your heads with me. I want you to ask yourself the question. As we lead into this next series, I want you to ask, who am I in this story? Are you the younger son right now? Man, you're arrogant. You're careless. You think, you think with your stomach. You just care about your immediate needs. You think you're so, whatever word you want to use, cool, or you're living it up in the world, and everybody thinks you're the, you're the, you're the, you're the hit of the party. But you don't even know who you are. You don't know who you are. And you're running around thinking you know what you need, but you don't because you don't know who you are. God's arms are open to you. God's arms are open to you. Maybe you're thinking, ma'am, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of like more like that older brother, filled with pride maybe. You don't like to say this about yourself, but no one else is going to say it. They're not saying it to you. You're just saying it to yourself, so just think about it. Maybe you're filled with pride. You think that you're spiritually superior, but when push comes to shove, you don't make the spiritually tough decisions. You kind of, you're, you're maybe that dad looking on the outside and not really getting engaged. You're, you're so focused on the wayward son, you're, you've forgotten this story is written to you. You have the ability to see the speck of dust in someone else's eye, but you don't see the plank that's in your own eye. And for a lot of us, and this is harsh to say, but we stand when it's convenient. Well, you know what? And what's really amazing? God's arms are open to you. When we recognize God's arms are open to you even before we realize what we need. God's arms are open to you. If you see yourself in that place, maybe you say, well, I I see myself as more of a Pharisee, legalistic, standing for the wrong things. Your spirituality is based on your own definition of good and holy and right. Your definition. You believe in God, but not God's definition of truth. And when the culture changes, maybe you change with it. When they decide what's right, wrong, or indifferent, you just go kind of go along with it. You're afraid to stand on God's word. It's easier to make up your own definitions and then go along with those definitions. But you know what's amazing? You know why Jesus told this, this parable? Because God's arms are open to you. I'm going to ask if you guys, if you see yourself in any part of this story, anywhere in the story, a mixture of, of these different people, I want you to pray this prayer with me. Just say it silent to your, silently to yourself. God, let me see my own sin. Let me see my own weakness. Father, help me stop playing a religious game. 
Forgive me for the time and the money and the life that I'm wasting. I'm not worthy to be called your son. I'm not worthy to be called your daughter. I'm not worthy to be called your child. But accept me anyway. Accept me anyway through your son, Jesus Christ. I accept with my mouth. I I verbalize with my mouth that Jesus is Lord. I believe in my heart that God has raised him from the dead. I believe what your word says is true. I believe that there is a God who loves me so much that he sent his son to this world to go after me. He loved me that much that he's running to me. He's anticipating us being back into fellowship with one another. I believe that, that God loves me that much. God, I want to belong to you and not this world. I'm sick of belonging to this world. I'm sick of living for this world. I'm sick of what everybody else thinks. I only want to care about what you think. I want to belong to you. I want to be your child. I ask that you come into my heart. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, here's what, I, here's what I'd love you to do. If, if you prayed that prayer with me, maybe it wasn't for a prayer of salvation. For some of you, maybe it was a prayer of salvation. Maybe you want to stand first. But I'm going to ask you, if you prayed that prayer and you see yourself in any of that, I want you to stand up and sing this last song with us. I want you to stand up and I'll, I'll be the first, I'm going to be the first one to stand. Father God, we pray that you would just dismiss us, Lord, as this song concludes. Pray that you dismiss us with your blessing. Father, help us to see where we need you so desperately. Thank you for being a God who runs after us, regardless of where we are in our spiritual journey. You run after us. And God, I pray as we sing this song, as we close this time out, we sing this song, that we would sing it with all of our hearts with all of our passion, with all of our desire, Lord God, to be one of your children and to live for you, to stand for you in this culture in which we live. In Jesus' precious and holy name, amen.